Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? Um, What we are not, would you make us, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Everyone loves a good story, don't they? You probably grew up reading stories. Your parents probably sat in your bed reading all sorts of stories to you, and they have fashioned and shaped your thinking as a child growing up. But here are some stories just from from my recollection that uh, I really enjoyed hearing about, but I think you probably are aware of too. The story of Beowulf, written in Anglo-Saxon English about this monster, but the location was in Sweden. Um, Incredible story. How about this one? Um, Kipling's The Jungle Book. Now, I know you've seen the movie, right? But I'm talking here about actually reading the story and taking it all in and what uh, what Kipling was trying to do and seeking to accomplish in that. Um, uh, Robin Hood. The story of Robin Hood, again, has, has its, its kind of uh, tentacles in the fabric of, in particular, British culture, uh, where you steal from the rich and you give to the poor. And of course, the rich there being uh, the aristocratic rich that really were treating the peasants in an unkind way to the point that they were suffering and starving. And then, of course, there's Homer's Iliad. You're like, what in the world is Homer's Iliad? Well, that's where we get the story of Helen of Troy. And we get the idea of a Trojan horse comes from this incredible story. About Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, you don't tell your kids to go off and sell your car and they come back with some beans. You're not going to be really, really happy, are you? In this case, it was a cow, but the beans produced a beanstalk, and there's a whole story there about a, a, a giant that says, fee fi fo fum I smell the blood of an Englishman, right? I mean, these are all part of, of, of the fabric. I mean, we, we, we know these stories. They're, they're there. Uh, and then, of course, moving here into the, into the States, one that comes to mind is the story of, of John Henry and his railroad hammer race against the steam engine, all part of deep American folklore. Now, stories like these have become a part of the fabric of our society, and these themes and images continue to be repeated today. I've mentioned them, right? Steal from the rich, give to the poor, or beware of that Trojan horse. They're they're there. Now, as we come to the Word of God, we find it full of stories, full of narratives, full of examples for us to study and to learn. And when we turn to Jesus, the Messiah, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And one of the things that he does when he preaches is that he teaches with illustrations. We've already seen a few in the book of Mark. If you've been with us, you'll remember these. Jesus talks about a bridegroom and his friends celebrating rather than fasting. He talks about the problem of trying to put new wine in old wineskins. Again, he's using images, he's using illustrations to help communicate a concept. And last week, as J.D. was, was preaching, he told the story, Jesus told the story of a, of a strong man Again, a parable in that context, but, a, but an image for us to sink our teeth into and hopefully grasp a little bit more about what was going on. So Jesus in his teaching is careful, he's skillful to teach us using natural stories that are all around him from the real life setting and circumstances of life, stories and images that people of his day could understand and relate to. And so Jesus was just a master storyteller. And that is what we find as we come to Mark 4. This very familiar passage, uh, often called the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, is a masterful story, purposeful, given by Jesus to do a couple of things. Now let's just consider the setting. Look at verse one. And he began to teach beside the sea. 
and a very large crowd gathered about him. I want you to think about that image. This is not just a crowd. This is a what? A very large crowd that's gathered about him. So that, because of the large crowd, he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. So here's Jesus sitting in a boat, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So there's actually two scenes in our text today. Scene number one is this very large crowd on the land, on the shore, and Jesus sitting in a boat, and he's teaching. But I would also say this is a public ministry that's going on. This is a public teaching. And that's verses 1 through 9. The second scene would be Jesus alone with his disciples, and it says there were some others that were there too. And there, he's not just telling the parable, he's also now interpreting or explaining the parable in a much more private setting to those who are his disciples and the others that are there. So this section actually begins at verse 1 and continues on through verse 35, and we're going to get to that next week. But it continues this, this theme, and it's a theme of the importance of hearing the Word of God. Just as J.D. mentioned as he began, and just as it was reinforced as we spent time uh, worshiping the Lord in song, this idea of being able to hear and understand is what is going on here. And so let's be careful that we don't just kind of tune out because we know this, this story or we know this parable, but let's uh, refresh our hearts here to say, Lord, give us fresh insight. Give us, give us the, the freedom to see things in a new way. And I want to kind of structure our time by f- focusing, first of all, on the fact that Jesus um, is this great storyteller, because this passage actually emphasizes that for us and explains for us what Jesus is actually doing in telling these stories. Look at verse 2, and he was teaching them many things in what? Parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, and then he gets into the actual parable. Now, one of the unique things about the genre, a genre is a style of literature. Okay, so one of the things that's interesting about the genre of the Gospels is that it's made up of a variety of genres, styles of literature. In the Gospels, you have things like narrative, where there's a story being told about some things that are happening with various people. So Jesus meets people, or or things are happening in a story. Then there's discourse, where Jesus typically is talking with other people. And you you understand this kind of, this back and forth that's going on. Then there's what's called apocalyptic, where Jesus actually is describing some aspects of future events. You're going to see that more in Matthew than you are in Mark. You're going to see some, but it's there, it's present. Then there's wisdom literature, For example, the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. These are all aspects of wisdom literature. And then you have what's called a parable. Now, a parable is a story to drive home a single point. But let's just think about the nature of a parable and really a definition that will help us here. It's in your notes, and so you can just kind of copy this down. But let me walk through it. A parable is a simple, usually narrative story that's grounded in the real world and used to provoke on a spiritual or moral point. Let's just kind of walk through those statements. It's simple. It's, it's usually, it usually has a single point. So a parable is not an allegory. An allegory is trying to find spiritual significance in all the different aspects of the story. That's not the point of a parable. A parable is trying to drive home one point. 
It's also narrative. It, it is a story, and so it follows a plot and a plot line. There's a, this real world. As Jesus is, is walking through, he talks about, you know, about ears of, of wheat, or he talks about a, a bushel, or he's ta- he, he, he sees things, and he brings those into the conversation in such a way that he is bringing spiritual insight through that real world reality. So agriculture, economics, relationships, these parables are not fantasy. They're not otherworldly. They're real life situations. And then this last part, uh, this idea that they, they provoke, they demand a response, they challenge ideas. So that's the nature of a parable. But I want us to think now about the purpose of a parable. What's the goal behind this parable or a a parable. Some simply liken a parable to an illustration. In other words, they're they're simply windows into deeper deeper spiritual understanding. And there's an element of truth to that, but it's certainly not enough. There's far more going on than that. Parables are used by Jesus to both reveal and to conceal spiritual truth. Now just listen to our text today. Look at verse 9. Verses 9 through 13 is what we're going to read here. And I just want you to think through what Jesus is saying about how he's using these parables. Verse 9, and he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which implies that some people, what? Are not going to be able to hear. And some are. Verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. In other words, you're going to have spiritual understanding, but there are going to be some who are on the outside of the kingdom who just all they hear is a story. They do not comprehend any spiritual truth at all. Verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I, you know, this, this, this kind of challenges maybe our theology because didn't Jesus come with the good news of the gospel wanting everyone to repent? Yes, he did. But he also knows the condition of man's hearts and he also knows that there are going to be people who reject Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand what? All the parables. Now get this, if we don't get this parable, you're not going to get any other parable. That's his point. If you aren't able to embrace what I'm teaching you in this parable, none of the other is going to make sense. This is the litmus test. This is the continental divide. This is what matters for you to understand the others. So Jesus identifies two groups of people, doesn't he? The you, the smaller group of people, including the disciples, they're the ones on the inside. Then there are those, they're the ones that are on the outside. So the ones on the inside to those ones on the inside, Jesus reveals the secret of the kingdom of God to them. That would be the truth of the gospel and the explanation of what the kingdom actually is like because of the gospel. But to the ones on the outside, Jesus speaks in parables to conceal spiritual insight and to reinforce what he says, he quotes Isaiah chapter six, verses nine through 10. Now you have to remember, this is Isaiah who has this vision of God, and this is the one where he sees God on his throne, and there's these cherubim, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and he falls down on his face, and the angel went and picks a coal from the altar, and God cleanses him, and then the question is, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And this is what God tells him to do, kind of in a truncated form. Go preach the word, but 
they may see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In other words, Isaiah knew that he was going to go with a message that was going to be rejected. So Jesus is quoting now from Isaiah to help those who are hearing to understand sometimes there is a divine aspect that causes people or reinforces or exposes people in their rejection of his truth. So parables are mirrors that reflect to us the principles of the kingdom of God. They force us to ask the question, where do I fit into the kingdom of God? Am I on the inside or am I on the outside? They show us our hearts in light of God's word. Now, what is the point of these parables? And I'm talking about the ones in chapter 4. There are actually three parables in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 through 35. There's actually a little section that's not a parable. It's more of an explanation that is right as verse 21 and following. But what is the purpose? Well, the key to understanding or to discovering the meaning of a parable is to understand Jesus' purpose in telling it. So we have to be detectives. We have to discover why is Jesus giving this parable? What is the point behind this parable? What is he trying to convey? What is he communicating? What is he intending for his audience to understand? We don't just look at the parable and pick it apart and come to conclusions. We look for clues as to what Jesus is saying about the parable that he's given. Now, the wonderful thing about this one is not only we're we given the parable, not only we told how parables work, but we're also given the interpretation of the parable, which helps us understand. But I would just in encourage you to, to consider that the emphasis that is throughout this text is this word here. This idea of actually receiving, hearing the word of God. The word hear in its various ways is used over 13 times in this passage. Let me draw your attention to verse 9. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. Look at verse 23. What does it say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then you could even continue on. And you could notice down at the bottom here, um, verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so, friends, the emphasis here is on hearing. Jesus is calling on all the gathered crowd to consider how they are listening and how they are responding to the proclamation of the word. That is what's going on here. Now let me remind you who's likely in that crowd. Remember, we, we established that it's a very large crowd. And remember, in Mark's gospel, all the people that have just been mentioned in the last chapter, and just there's, there's a whole bunch of people, right? The, the people whose lives have been changed by Jesus' healing touch, the formerly lame or diseased or blind or withered hand or uh, demon-possessed. Those may be present there. Those who saw Jesus do those things and were amazed and were astonished are there. Family members, friends, neighbors of those people who have been healed. Those from the towns and villages around Galilee where Jesus had ministered, who had sought him out. Remember, everyone was looking for him because they wanted this miracle worker to do his work on people that they cared about. The religious elite who kind of come in and out, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are present, but we found out that they are wanting to kill him. And of course, their hearts were exposed. The hypocrisy of their behavior was revealed by Jesus, and they are out to get him. And possibly there were family members of Jesus who were still convinced that he's out of his mind, who are just coming to see what in the world is going on here. And then, of course, the disciples 
who have been handpicked by Jesus, who are watching and listening and learning. This is quite a crowd, friends. Jesus was speaking to all of these, and his goal was that they would listen to the proclamation and receive the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, having said all that, we want now to move from this idea of Jesus the storyteller to the actual story. And what I've chosen to do is kind of take the story and the interpretation and kind of squeeze it together so that we can see all that is being said about these various soils. But as we look at this particular, um, this particular parable, um, I would like to just emphasize that the, the pinpoint um, proposition of this parable is this, how you listen to the word, the truth, the announcement by Jesus concerning the kingdom is of critical and eternal importance. So just kind of streamline that. How you listen to the word is of critical and eternal importance. How we listen to the truth will not only determine our response, but will determine even our eventual destiny. In this parable, there are four responses with four different ends to their story. Let me read them for you. Devoured. Withered. Unfruitful. And then fruitful. How we listen, friends, to the word is a life and death matter. Now, let's just make sure we're understanding who everyone is. First of all, there's the sower. The sower is, of course, Christ. Look at verse three. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. All right, in verse 14, the sower sows the word. This is Jesus who's already been identified by Mark as a miracle worker, as a master with a chosen following of disciples, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, the Messiah. And Jesus, this Jesus comes into Galilee doing something. You might say, well, he came healing. Well, he actually came preaching. And the healings reinforced that he was one to be listened to, but his goal was to go into the towns and villages and to preach the good news. That's what he came to do. And the end result, the goal of that is that those who would listen to his message of good news would repent and believe in the gospel. So the sower is Christ. The seed, of course, is the word of God. This is the proclamation. It's the announcement. It's the teaching that Jesus has been and will continue to bring. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the soils are the hearts of those who hear the word preached by Jesus. So you have this incredible picture, <laughs> this incredible story that is encompassing everyone who's present and has a purpose to divide, to reveal, to conceal, to expose, and at the same time to bring people in. Now, we have to also understand that the means by which the sower goes out to sow. In many contexts, many cultures, when people sow, they kind of, they, 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 they get a furrow and then they go and they put a hole and they put a seed and they cover it up and they go and they do that again. That's not the picture here. This is a very, very, I might want to say indiscriminate kind of sowing. It is possible that even the sower in the image here does not have any kind of indication or comprehension of the different kind of soils that he's sowing on. 
except for the fact that he's walking down a path. And typically what he would do is he'd carry a bag, and as he's walking on the path, he's putting his hand in, and he's throwing out the seed like this. And he's going over here, and he's throwing out the seed. And so it's, it's falling all over the place. Now, I don't know about you, but anyone here ever have any lawn issues? I have lawn issues. Last year, everyone had lawn issues because of the drought, right? And my, my grass was looking, I say, my weeds were looking great. And so I wanted to put some, some seed out, and I did. I got the seed that's supposed to come up real fast, and I went out there, and, you know, and, I'm, and I'm trying to find all the bare areas and throwing it. But at the same time, when I am kind of covered that up, I'm like, okay, I'm just, just going to throw it out there, and maybe it'll hit some spots that I couldn't get to, all right? But the point here is that the, the, the sower is not aiming for a particular patch. The sower is just sowing the seed, okay? And it's going to land on the soil in an indiscriminate way. And there are four types of soils that represents four types of hearts that interact then with this seed. The first one is the soil on the path. And this is simply the, the hard heart. The truth about the kingdom of God was like water off a duck's back to this particular soil. Let's read it. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Verse 15. And these are the ones along the path. This is the interpretation now. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now what's interesting here is that it does say that they hear. But Satan comes and takes away that seed. So the primary focus, I think, in the context of what's going on here, of the hard-hearted or ground is this hard-hearted listener who ultimately would represent the religious elite and those who were in league with them. They are the Pharisees, they're the scribes, or anyone like them who refuse to listen to what Jesus is saying. They're not going to listen to it. They don't want to listen to it. Their hearts were hardened by their religious presuppositions, their distortions, and their prejudices. They were too sophisticated for the message that Jesus was bringing. But like I said, this would not just be limited to them, but anyone who would outright reject the message of good news. These are the ones that just simply didn't care. Now, some people are like that, aren't they? They're so consumed with what they believe and what they affirm and their ideologies and their Uh, their passions, that they have no interest in the good news of the gospel. They don't need Jesus. They're just fine by themselves, thank you very much. They don't want anyone to come in and handle their issues. They can handle their issues, their struggles, and their problems. They're self-sufficient. They don't need a crutch or or, or to, to cling to something other than themselves to make themselves feel better. They have all they need and certainly don't need anyone telling them how bad they are or how much they need help. Seriously, how rude are you? How hateful? Why do you really think that you have the right to say anything to me? Got to figure it out. I don't need this gospel. And we rub shoulders with people like this all the time at work, The person sitting in that cubicle near you, in the neighborhood, maybe they're your neighbors, maybe they're people across the street, maybe they're they're up the road at school, whether it's high school or even college, and some of you are in those contexts where your teacher is one of these people. Even in the coffee shop, there are people who are hardened to the gospel. But hear this, you might even find this hard heart in attendance at church. They're present out of respect for mom or for dad. They might be present because there's a, a kids program going on or there's a, there's a baby dedication or maybe they're, they're here because of a friend 
They're at church sometimes simply because that's just from the cultural perspective what they do at Christmas and at Easter and Mother's Day. But their hearts are hard. They have no interest in the gospel whatsoever. The word comes and it's devoured. That's the first group. Secondly, there's the rocky ground. I'm calling here the shallow heart. And what's interesting about this one is that it appears to have a good response. And sometimes in the church, we're fooled by this one because of the response. But it is ultimately a shallow and emotional response. Let's read this, verses 5 and 6, and then verses 16 and 17. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And here's the interpretation. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with joy. Woohoo! Celebrate! Someone's gotten saved. Someone's been converted. We have a a new child in the family of God. Yet there's something going on here that we need to be concerned with. It says in verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now this is a, one side of the coin response to the truth. It's all joy, it's all celebration, it's excitement, it's happiness, but it is lacking some things. There's no sorrow or shame for sin. There's no grief as it relates to repentance. This is a shallow and superficial response to the truth. Friends, this was an issue in Jesus' ministry and in his day, but friends, it is a huge epidemic in the contemporary church today. It's all about celebration. It's all about joy. It's all about praise. It's all about excitement. It's all about dynamic worship experience together. Wasn't church great today? Woo, man, I feel so good. Oh, man, I am pumped up. I am ready to go. It's all about sermons that encourage and leave me feeling good and loved. But pastor, don't be a downer. Don't talk to me about my sin. Don't confront me about my my worldliness or my hypocrisy. Don't expose my hard-heartedness toward the truth. Just let me enjoy my Christianity and celebrate it with my friends. But God gives us his word. And notice what Hebrews 4.10 tells us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God is supposed to penetrate the heart and to expose what is there. The shallow heart doesn't want that kind of penetration. It doesn't want that kind of heart surgery. It just wants to keep things on the surface. Just keep it simple. Keep it joyful. Keep it non-confrontational. Remember how the Apostle John describes Jesus. 1 John 14, or John, I should say, chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. See, the two-sided coin here is grace and truth, joy 
and repentance. And notice again how Jesus describes their heart. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They have joy, but they don't have any root. It's all outward. It's all on the outside. The joy they feel sustains them for a while, but they have no root in themselves. In other words, they have no depth of conviction or belief. They have nothing to anchor to. They do not care about theology or doctrine. All they want to do is celebrate and enjoy. So when tribulation or persecution come, on account of the word. In other words, there's times of, there's, there's seasons of joy, but there's also seasons of persecution because you're identifying with Christ. When that happens, they're out of here. They, they just wander off. They fall away, the scripture says. That is, they are scandalized. That's what that word is. Now notice this, immediate, immediate joy, immediate falling away. It's all shallow. So the trials of the living out the Christian life, the standing on the word, the standing in the word, the standing for the word, are too much for them, and they throw in the towel. And one response leads to being devoured, the second to falling away. Now the third response leads to being unfruitful. This is identified as the thorny ground, or what I'm calling the congested heart. When the sower went out to sow, all that he sees is some dirt. Some of it's hard, some of it's shallow. And this dirt is infested with weeds. He can't see the weeds. No, no, the weeds are there. The seeds are there in the dirt. They're under the surface. They're ready to grow. Notice what it says in verse 7 and then verse 18 and following. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. They receive the word, but they refuse to apply any of the words weed killer to the weeds in their lives. The place and the priority of the word is choked out by all the weeds that now have become the priority. Jesus describes these weeds as, as you see there, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. Now there's two stories kind of in Mark's context that might help us at least grab a hold of what's going on here. The first one um, comes from the life of Herod. Chapter six and verse 20. If you remember, Herod used to love going down and talking to who? John the Baptist. I mean, in fact, the text tells us he would hear the word gladly. I mean, there was something about what John was saying as he was teaching the word, as he was sharing the word. And of course, that word would be the Old Testament. And Herod is like really enjoying, he used to love going and listening to it. But that all was choked out by his desire for self-preservation, honor, and power, so much so that the person in whom he delighted when the word was being taught, John the Baptist, he is willing to have him executed to keep a foolish oath that he gives to his daughter. That's Herod. Then, of course, in chapter 10 and verse 22, we have the rich young ruler and he comes, he's like, Master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus goes right for his heart. You know, sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. But he went away sorrowful, we're told, because he had, what? Great possessions. You see, there is this willingness, this desire 
but the possessions crowded it out. So we must ask ourselves, what is it that's crowding out the seed of the gospel in my life? Is it the pursuit of my business and my career? And don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to have a business, it's not wrong to have a career, but there's a balance of where that fits into your life. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, and ultimately what that means is that he wants to be in the center of everything. So if you have a business, is Jesus at the center of it? What about your hobbies and your pleasures? What about your your spouse, your family, or your friends? You're like, what are you talking about, my spouse? Your spouse can become your idol in the place of Christ and can hinder you from hearing the word. Your children can be that way. The United States is very much a child-centered culture. And even your family can get in the way, can crowd out the gospel. Your passions, your desires, your idols, your sin, all of these are different weeds that grow up. Now friends, we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of heart do we have? Is this kind, the kind of heart that, that we have that's actually choking out the gospel? Now, I identify this heart as the congested heart, but the question is, with what is the heart congested? And I think that the right answer to that question is this. I summed it up in one word, and it's the word worldliness. Worldliness. The attitude of worldliness says that I can have the best of both worlds. I can have Jesus, the church, and the gospel, and I can have the sinful desires of my heart. But the Apostle Paul says, not Paul, John says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By world, what he's talking about is the system that is present, that is in opposition to the things of God. Don't love that world. It's not just talking about smoking, drinking, dancing, and running with women who do, okay? I know many times in church, it's kind of limited to that. Those are things that might flow out of a worldly mindset, but this is talking about the thinking of the world, the ideologies that are out there. The Apostle Paul reinforces this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know this passage very well. He says, I appeal to you therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the mold of the world, is what he's saying. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That takes place by virtue of the word of God, active in the heart and the mind of a believer. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So friends, this worldliness is always a struggle for the church, isn't it? And it was a struggle for the people of Israel through the years. And they went after foreign gods because they found that they weren't satisfied with their one true God. And it was their sinful hearts that led them away. And they not only worshipped those foreign gods, but they, they intermarried with those people that God said you should not be intermarrying with. And as a result, idolatry and behavior all changed. Worldliness is present when the attitudes and ideologies, attitudes and ideologies that are opposed to the teaching of Scripture are allowed to take root in the hearts of people and they begin to crowd out the truth of God's Word. Let me say that again. Worldliness is present when attitudes and ideologies that are opposed to the, the teaching of Scripture are allowed to take root in the hearts of people and they begin to crowd out the truth of God's word. Let me give you a few examples. In recent months, weeks, whatever, there's been just this kind of, this tone of racism and white supremacism, 
supremacy and that kind of stuff. And friends, as you open up the pages of God's word, you do not find support for that. That is an ideology that comes from the thinking of the world. And what happens when someone says, well, we have a church and it's a white supremacist church, they have brought in ideology that's foreign to God's word into the context of church. Same would be true of any kind of racism. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God tells us that God has taken people from tribes and nations around the world and He has brought them together as one man to be the church. So we celebrate the different ethnicities that are part of the church. We're not people who are racist. We enjoy potlucks. We enjoy gathering together together as different people from different nations and different tribes. That's all what the church should be looking like. Here's another one. Much of psychology and psychiatry is an ideology from the world. We've got to be really, really careful because we bring it in. I mean, for the longest time, I've got to build up my child's self-esteem. No, 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 you don't have to do that. It goes, that goes contrary to the Word of God. That child needs to know their worth in Christ. Not just to build up some kind of psychological self-esteem. That's nonsense. That is contrary to Scripture. That is self-love. And our culture also is aggressive in its pursuit of pleasure, isn't it? And that just creeps into the church. Oh, I can't wait for Friday. No, I'm agree with, I agree with you. I can't wait for Friday. But, right? but we, there's this pleasure mentality. Pleasure, 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 pleasure. And it undermines the fabric of the church, the fabric of the family, the fabric of marriage. Now my point here is this, these are attitudes that, that creep in and crowd out the truth of God's word because now these are things that we have to hold on to. Worldliness accepts the presuppositions of the culture as opposed to the truth revealed in God's word. And rather than allow the weed killer of God's word to root out those worldly ideas and practices, these people try to find some way that the Bible looks favorably on their attitudes and practices and somehow accepts them. But the problem is they have to do a whole bunch of interpretive gymnastics to get to their point. That which is in opposition to God cannot be embraced by God. So it's foolish and it's dangerous to think that God accepts worldliness and sin along with his gospel. Now I'm not saying that his gospel can't pay for those things. But you don't say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have that, I'll, I'll receive that word, but I'm going to continue doing this. Oh. So, then we move to the last soil. The last soil is the good ground, good soil. It's the receptive heart. The first three soils described by Jesus are given to us with finality. They're devoured. They, they fell away. They are unfruitful. It's a, it's a point in time end. This is what happens. Although different, all three express a superficial kind of hearing. It's temporary, it's not lasting. And their failure to hear confirms that they are all outsiders and the word becomes fruitless to them. But there's a fourth soil that listens and responds to the word of God in a different way. Let's look at it, verse eight and then verse 20. And the other seed fell into the good soil and produces grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So unlike the other three soils, this soil's response is a continual, ongoing hearing that continues to bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, friend, how is it 
that this good soil is able to receive the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bear fruit. What makes it different? What makes it any better than the other soils? Is it actually any better than the other soils? I mean, is, is this person that this is representing somehow more moral or more intellectually astute or maybe, uh, you know, kind of higher in the culture as far as their position? Of course, the answer is a resounding what? No. Let's consider the teaching of Scripture. Jesus tells us as he encounters the Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, um, these words. This is John 3, verse 3 and verse 5. Unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's a prerequisite here to entering the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 6 and verse 44, again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, it's not just that they're born again, but there is this aspect of the Father drawing people to Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 8, it says, you, had, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. This faith, this conversion, this, this regeneration, this drawing is all part of God's work. So what happens here is this. The good soil is good because of the supernatural work on the soul by God, the Holy Spirit. The reason why someone can respond to the word is because God has already done a work in that heart. So the only people who embrace the word are those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit, making them able to receive the word of God. In short, regeneration comes before faith. The Holy Spirit has to change a person's heart before they will ever say yes to his word. Now friends, there is a primary point that Jesus has for this um, this parable, and there's a secondary application. I just want to talk briefly about the primary point. Jesus here is, is emphasizing the importance of hearing the word for conversion. That's the argument here. It's a gospel. It's there to show Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom, okay? He's saying there's really only two kinds of hearers. There are the unfruitful, and they're on the outside, and there are the fruitful, they're on the inside. So the primary focus is entry into the kingdom of God by virtue of hearing or receiving the gospel of God, this, this gospel that Jesus is preaching. And what makes the heart good is not your effort, your intellect, or morality. What makes the heart good is the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart. And friends, that is, that is the point. That's what he's saying to this crowd. If you do not hear, then how can you hear anything else. If you are not born again, you will not comprehend anything else that I'm saying. You cannot, you will not, unless the Holy Spirit is in you and illuminating for you the truth of the Word of God. That's the primary focus. But I think there's a secondary application here, and I want to say this is secondary because I don't think this is the primary focus, but it is true that these disciples then, those who are truly on the inside, who, who do receive, they are also now living out continually this, this, this attitude of listening and hearing to the word of God. So the secondary application is for those who have a regenerate heart, heart who must continue to receive the word and bear fruit. Now they're in the kingdom. They, 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 they're in a sense, they're on the inside. They're secure in their salvation. But friends, you know what it's like. You can, you can slip back and you can allow the weeds of this world to creep in and start, start to crowd out again 
that word that you hold dear. You can become shallow in your approach to God. For whatever reason, you begin to focus on all the, 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 you know, the cool, hip, you know, trendy stuff as opposed to the essence of the word of God being ministered to your soul. And sadly, at times, because of sin and because of tragedy and because of hardship, you might even come to the place where you're rejecting parts of God's word. And friends, this is where as believers, we need to learn how to cultivate a receptive heart. We want to cultivate it. We want to make sure that the ground continues to be fertile and ready for the word of God. So the question now is, how do we cultivate a receptive heart? Let me just give you five ways, and I'm not going to take long here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you all sorts of illustrations with it, but I'm going to help you at least think it through. First, a carefulness to actively listen to the word. So much of the church in recent years has cultivated an attitude among those attending that says, tell me why I need to listen to this, pastor. In other words, now my job as pastor is to convince you that this is important enough for you to listen. Those who have been the recipients of the word of God should come into the context of church sitting on the edge of their seat, not because of the preacher, but because of the dynamic of the Word of God being preached and taught and the impact that it will have on their souls. So those who are cultivating this receptive heart are, are eager to learn and they are wanting to give attention to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, whether it's in a public setting, or even on a personal level as they're having their own quiet time. Secondly, a carefulness to humbly submit to the word. It's one thing to say, I'll, I'll go and listen to it. It's another thing to say, I'm gonna submit to it. In other words, I'm willing to place myself under the word. I'm willing for God, through his word, to say anything he wants to say to me. To expose any sin, to expose any struggle I may have. Therefore, we're willingly placing ourselves under the word of God rather than placing ourselves over it. Number three, a carefulness to diligently obey the word. Once God has revealed himself, once he has shown maybe the condition of your heart or some struggle or sin that you're going through, are you diligent to obey what he said? It might be difficult. You might need to bring some other people to help and support or counsel you. But are you eager to be obedient to God's word and his will? Number four, a carefulness to joyfully delight in the word. And here, here I just draw your attention. There's plenty of places we could go, but I just draw your attention to Psalm 1. I mean, it talks, begins by says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But then it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, what does he do? He meditates day and night. And the result of that is that he, he, will, <laughs> he will bear fruit in season. His leaf will not wither. And all that he does he prospers. And don't think of that as money. Think of that just as, as a life of joy. But friends, it comes from just joyfully delighting in the word. Do you long just for that time where you can open the word of God and, and just be interacting with him? It's part of our cultivation of a receptive heart. The last one here is this, and this kind of goes back to what I said earlier, a carefulness to be securely anchored in the word. The idea here that I'm trying to convey in presenting this to you is that the word of God is central to everything that we're doing. Certainly Christ is saying, I want to be central, but how do we know what Christ says in all of life? He says it by virtue of his word. And so we want the word of God to be that, that anchor that, we're, that we're, we're tethered to. 
You're going through difficult times. I'm going through a time where we're trying to figure out what's going on with this sickness or these experiences I'm having. Some of you are going through difficult times with family or, or struggle or relationships or job, whatever. And to be anchored to the word is critically important. It must be central. And we must be careful, I say careful here, to cultivate these things. Purposeful, mindful, deliberate. Now I want to finish here just by leaving us with three implications from this passage that I think are really, really important and practical, I think, hopefully for us. Number one, there's implications for teachers and preachers of God's word. My job as a pastor, hear this, is not to entertain you. Now I know I'm goofy looking, so you get that right away. But my job is not somehow for you to walk out and say, wasn't Pastor Rod funny today? I mean, what's, what, that, that illustration he used, man, that was so hilarious, man. Oh, man, I wish I could get that on tape. No, that's not my job at all. Now, certainly humor is going to be a part of what we're doing. But my job is simply to take the truth of God's word and, and like, a, like a faithful waiter, get it from the chef and get it to the table without messing it up so that you can feed on it and you can know this is steak, this is potatoes, these are beans. I know you don't like beans, but you need them. It's my job. So we don't add to the seed. We don't somehow make the seed more palatable. We just need to faithfully preach it, teach it, and proclaim it. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the preaching of the cross, the gospel, the word, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I mean, it, it, it really, when you think about it, it, it is a foolish practice, isn't it? You come week after week to listen to a guy stand up for an hour and tell you what God is saying through his book. Now, we, we know it, we, we, we experience it, we, we, we believe it, but just think about that dynamic. Think of anything else. You're going to go week after week to figure out how to, how, how to fix your car. No, thank you. Not going to do that. But when it comes to this, it comes by virtue of the preached word. And so Jesus ultimately sent out the disciples to preach and then to reproduce what he was doing in those various places. They went out and preached and preached and preached. So hear this. It, it ripples down into what I'm doing. It ripples down into what you're doing. So when you are there in the classroom with those four and five-year-olds and they are just squirrely around and they're not listening to what you have to say and you're telling the story of the Bible, don't give up. The word of God is coming out through you and that word of God is landing on hearts. Little five, four and five-year-old hearts, I understand that. And your job, yes, is to, is, is to help maybe communicate that at a level of their understanding, but get this, there is a spiritual dynamic that is going on in what in that moment seems like nothing. So keep it up. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you guys aren't in there today. But those that are in there right now, they may be struggling. But the word of God is going out. And whether it's four and five-year-olds, whether it's junior high, whether it's teenagers, or whether it's adults. Listen, as a pastor, I have the privilege of looking out on a congregation. Sometimes it's encouraging. And then there are other times. And I've preached through sermons where there's been a person sitting like right over there and they're like. <laughs> and no one around them is, you know, like. Right? I mean, I, when I was in Michigan, I preached one time with, there's a guy, every, every Sunday I'd get 15 minutes in, he was sitting right there, older guy, had a cane, he'd fall asleep. And constantly his wife would be nudging him. And then one day, 15 minutes in, he's out. Right? And, and the way the church was set up was kind of like wide. It was more spread out this way, right? And on this particular Sunday, he's out, and then next to him is his wife. She's out. So <laughs> I, it's lost, right? But listen, you, you keep on doing what God has called you to do. Why? 
Because the power is not in me. The power is in the word that is being sown. In whatever the context is. And friends, we need to hear that. We need to remember that. and we need to, we need to act based on that as we minister. Secondly, implications for those who are translating God's word. The importance of translating the word of God. How many of you have more, more than 10 Bibles at home? Yeah, I do. In different translations. Now, some translations are better than others. And one of the things that we, we need to, to really kind of work on and, and encourage is the translation of the Word of God accurately, carefully into languages so that people have the Word of God. Now, there certainly can be preachers who are translating might want to say from one language and proclaiming in a different language, but that's still clunky. When people have the word of God in their language, you might have seen some of those YouTube videos of planes flying into a village and they finally have the word of God in their language and the people come out and they are weeping. It has implications for this because the word of God needs to go out so that it can reach hearts. And it has implications also for all those of us who sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word every week. When the word is preached, when the word is taught, or you're reading it personally, how do you receive it? How is it bearing fruit in your life? Lord, help us today. First of all, Lord, we are amazed that you have created us unlike any other creature in this world to be able to receive the revelation of your word. And Lord, that marks us as not just being you know, one of evolution's freaks. You have created us in your image and in that capacity you have created us to be able to commune with you and you created us so that when you breathe out your word, we can listen and we can hear. Lord, what a privilege it is. But Lord, my heart is burdened for those who may be present here today and they're here out of good reasons and yet their heart is hard heart is shallow. It's, it's choked out by other things. And Lord, you may be doing a work on that person's heart. And Lord, you, you are stirring them up to see that the greatest gift, apart from your son Jesus Christ, is the fact that you commune with us through your word. And that your word has come forth in the gospel, in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And through that, that we can, we can actually embrace this new life. Lord, would you stir up hearts by virtue of your Holy Spirit and have your way with the seed of your gospel. Lord, it's only you can, that can do that. Lord, we ask as your children now, that we would be faithful to be eager to cultivate our hearts, to be careful receivers of your truth, to make it a priority, to see that it is the, it is the, the door into understanding everything else. Lord, help us. You are a great God and Savior. We do not deserve what we have, but Lord, you have lavished it on us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your commitment to us. We ask now in your name.